0: Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the ScotsCare podcast. ScotsCare is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. On the podcast today is a musical artist who, alongside his brother, has been making music for over 35 years. Together, they've sold millions of records globally. Their band is called Hugh and Cry and he is Greg Kane. Scots Care. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome, Marcus. I'm looking forward to it. Go easy on me. Of course I will. Are you at work now? Do you do you go into the studio every day, or or do you are you more laid back about work these days? Uh,
1: I try to. The I've got a good friend, uh, Gerard Burns, who's a very successful artist in Scotland. He painted the famous um, massive Highland cow paintings with a wee girl holding the Highland cow with the, the the rope through its nose or the ring through its nose. And Jerry's a good friend of mine. I usually go through to his house in uh, Dulleter, which is outside Cumbernauld, beautiful big house, but it doubles as his art studio and his gallery. It's that big a house. So he doesn't need a gallery and he doesn't need an art studio. And he says to me, he goes every morning at eight in the morning and he paints till five. And he says, it's not always successful. And I said, oh, Jerry, I can't, I I couldn't do that. And he said, it's like throwing enough forgive me, crap against the wall to see how much of it sticks. I can't create like that, but he can. And he doesn't, it seems to, the hardest thing about being a creative is there's more failures than there are successes. And it's how you deal with the failures um, that makes you successful. Because if you dwell on them and they start to eat away at you, then they can really destroy you, uh, your confidence in being a creator. And um, I tried that nine to five Monday to Friday cool oh, it was really really hard so we have our own studio here in Glasgow we've got a big control room big live room and a, an office space um, and this is Pat nice little man cave where we come and make our music so we're very 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 lucky to have this space and he's up just now from London for a week to do some work with me we've, um, we played down in Essex end of last week with Simple Minds And he just jumped in the tour bus and came up the road with me and uh, he's going to be here till Saturday. So I don't do the nine to five. Um, Sometimes I like to stay over here, try and stay overnight in the studio two or three times a month. Um, Probably my partner enjoys it as well, getting rid of me for a few nights a month. But um, it's a very creative space. And I used to go away to make music. In the heydays, I used to go to New York quite a lot for like a month or two and write and record and Pat would come over or there's a place in Florida called Sarasota which is the winter camp the winter home for the um, Chicago White Sox and the Barnum and Bailey Circus and it's a real creative vibe. place. I used to go there for like a month every year just to write and just to make stuff and then closer to home I used to go up to the Lake of Monteith which is oh, the yeah. only lake in Scotland and um, Chris the guy who married into the Nairn family is a friend of mine He's an old truck driver for us, so he looks after the shallies, so he'll give me, like, a cash deal, wink, wink, no, don't say anything, (laughs) and I can go up there for a couple of weeks and do some work. But then, nine years ago, I had a child. So the kind of disappearing for a month to kind of search your creative uh, depths is not really an option anymore. No,
0: it's not on, it's just not accepted anymore, is it? Yeah.
1: Well, I really, really struggled, and... um. It's unfair in her mother to say, like, I need to bug her off for a month to be creative. It doesn't, it's not fair. I couldn't, I can't do that. And then she's nine years old now, Eva. So she's a bit easier now. She can come and sit in the studio and she can sit in the live room and she can potter about. But, you know, every hour and a half, every hour she comes in and asks, which which to her is quite an important question, but not to me. So it doesn't really work. Um, So I've really struggled creatively over the last few years. And then COVID hit. And that was terrible. I didn't have any enthusiasm for making anything. It was really, really tough.
0: I think we are about the same age, and you know? I. It's like you—you you were talking about how you deal with your failures. Do you feel more comfortable generally in your own skin now? I think it's taken me a long time to get there. I think I—you know—I—I'm—I fi- turned fifty-one just a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I'm and I still, unfortunately, care probably too much about what people I don't know think of me or are you oh, getting past that
1: oh no I'm way past that I've never really but I have a different life I mean I'm just in a, quite a new relationship four years Ron and I have been together and it's taken her a long time to understand what I do Um, I don't need uh, justification or my ego massage because you know 50 times a year I get up on the stage in front of hundreds sometimes thousands of people um and i play songs with my brother for an hour and i get applause and i get pats in the back and i get that was great and that's my wee jolt of you're okay greg and i come back after it's usually about two or three weekends a month we go away and i come back to normal life and i don't need any kind of ego boost or um ego support because i've just had it and the thing as well is Hugh and cry being brothers or a duo I watch these artists who are solo artists um and they have to do all this on their own Pat and I at least have got the kind of support um mechanisms for each other we do it together
0: so we're very very lucky I want to talk about that actually I'll come on to that a bit later can I go back to the beginning what age do you what age did you take up the piano because my wife's always saying oh do you know what we've got to get the kids into something musical and I remember when I was a kid I went to piano lessons in and faithfully just outside Clydebank And I showed no musical talent, and my mum would make me practice every week. And I was just—I just didn't have it. What what age did you start off, and did you—did it come, if not easy, did it come natural to you?
1: Basically, that's the number two bus, isn't it, that goes to? (laughs) (laughs) Been on that bus. (laughs) Uh, What happened? We, my mother's stepfather died, and he bequeathed the piano to her. So that was put in. Mum and Dad bought a house they couldn't afford. It was a big house, and they worked tirelessly to sort of make all the mortgage payments, stuff like that. But one of the, there was a room that was spare in it, and um, this piano was deposited there after my grandfather died. And then um, my local mother was in the local shop, and the piano teacher that lived a few doors down was in the shop, and she was kind of touting for business. And she said to her mum, any of your boys want to learn how to play piano? Because um, I think she'd seen the piano being delivered to the house. And um, I was downstairs first that morning. It was a Sunday morning and mum posed a question. And I said, yeah. So if Pat had come down first that morning, he might have been helping John and I may have been completely different. My life might have gone a different way. Um, but I studied piano, classical piano from the age of nine till I was 16. I sat on my exams in the it the Athenaeum, that beautiful building at the top of Buchanan Street where yeah. the hard rock cafe is now. That's where I went from all my piano lessons. And I had a fabulous music teacher at school, a guy called John Picaithley, who was um, the the organist at Motherwell Cathedral, which is one of the most beautiful cathedral organs in the country. Um, And John sort of took me under his wing when I was a kid um, at high school. And he sort of pointed me in the right directions. And the school was so supportive, but in really weird ways. The most supportive guy, apart from my music teachers at school, at high school, was the janitor. He used to let us rehearse in the stage back at the stage in the assembly hall when the cleaners were in between four and six. So we'd free rehearsal space and we used to store our gear at the side of the, the stage and he would let us make a racket. And that's great, that, isn't it? He was such a kind man. And you'd think it'd be like, you know, our headmaster at our school was Bob Crampsy, who was the first brain of Britain. So he was very musical. So he used to come not every time, but a few times he came and sat and listened to his play in the assembly hall between four and six. And was obviously critical because he was a big, carnapsious man. But uh, there was lots of little support things happening all over the school. And you would like to think that still happens today. I mean, my daughter, her mother's a musician as well. Um, she's playing with Goodbye Mr Mackenzie at the moment, and she's toured the world with her band, The Hedrons. Um and Eva, my daughter's got me, who's a professional musician as well, but she's got no interest in music. And in this place that I'm sitting, there's one, two, three pianos in here. And when our friends come to visit here, they just leap on the pianos and they sit and play. And my daughter will say, come on, let's go and make slime. Don't want to play piano. <laughs> let's make slime. <laughs> she's not even in. She can sing and she can dance, but she's... We, we put her into the Royal Conservatoire in Glasgow. The Royal of Music is one of the top ten schools in the world for music. So um I know Tommy Smith, the dean of the jazz um course, and I know some other people. Uh, Phil Cunningham's the dean of the Trad course. Okay, yeah. Some brilliant um, top of their game lecturers. So I thought this would be great for you when she was young. She hated it. She begged not to go. So you never know. I mean, it's my mum and dad, my mom and dad weren't musical. So I mean, we didn't get it from them.
0: But do you think your daughter shows, do you think she has inherited a musical talent? Do you think it might come out? My, my father-in-law, he he was a musician. He played in a band in the 60s called the Medievals, and they had a couple of hits. And so my wife and her three brothers all seem to have this ability when, when I'm at their house. They can pick up a guitar or a piano and listen mm-hmm. to something and just start to pick it out without mm-hmm. any kind of formal musical training. I wonder if Eva will inherit that from you or her mom. See, I know. Uh,
1: being a classically trained pianist, I had my early years were all about practice, and I had a practice regime that you can't really break because as soon as you stop playing, you know, you need to go, you go backwards in your abilities. So I, that was drummed into me by my piano teacher. And Pat and I, as Hugh and Cry, we use a lot of jazz musicians, and he talked to them about their history and their story. And most musicians are quite antisocial because spent so much of their time practicing, and the and, and on their own because you can't practice with anybody else. You practice it on your own. Yeah. So a lot of musicians are insular for that reason. A lot of singers are insular because they live near monastic life. So, well, the ones that can still sing, they don't go. They can't. Do, they can't go out talking and shouting in pubs for hours and then because it wrecks their vocal cords and they're always resting because they've got to sing. You know, three times a week uh, for two hours at a, sh- at a time. So musicians are, you know. By nature, very insular and very kind of anti-social people. So I mean, my daughter's not anti-social. I mean, I was a wee weirdo when I was wee. weak. All I was doing was playing the piano. And then at 13 when I got to school, um there was they had orchestra school orchestras and they had instruments to give out to kids. And they gave me a saxophone. So I started playing saxophone from I was 13 and um ended up playing at that time. Saxophone was quite prominent uh, in in music. There was the Boomtown Rats, there was Hazel O'Connor. There was UB 40, um, obviously J.R. After Baker Street. There was saxophone everywhere. So like, I started gigging when I was 15, 16 years old. I had to learn God Save the Queen quite pretty quick because most of the gigs were in orange halls. I know. You had to learn that. My dad used to go, and that's how I go home. And did you play it again? I said, yes, dad.
0: <laughs> and do you think would if, if your daughter showed an interest later, would you be happier for her to be a musician? Because it can be a tough old life. It is a tough old
1: life. I mean, I've been through I mean, I can do poor and I can do rich. I've been both multiple times. Um, there's not a kind of exponential trajectory in the music business. You kind of, you know, it's all about peaks and troughs. And again, I go back to the thing about dealing with the failures. You just, musicians and creative people have got robust mechanisms for dealing with failure. And I, I guess it's it's all the knocks. Um, I mean, another thing is my, my daughter... Um, has been modelling since she was three. So it's not that she's the most beautiful kid in the whole world, although she is the most beautiful kid in the whole world. Of course. But um, her mother was a debt collector for a model agency. That was a spare her part-time job as as well as being a musician. So when we had it, Eva, um, obviously you were proudly posting your photographs on Facebook and the girl that owned the model agency said, because she knew Yvonne and she knew me, he said, look, you fancy booking her. We need a two-year-old to do this shoot. And it's more to do with the parents being compliant or understanding because it's all hanging about. You know what it's like, yeah. you know, and that puts a lot of onus on the parents to keep the kids entertained, to give them instruction. It's all that sort of stuff. So the more agencies, especially kids' more agencies, look at the parents and the more the more analysing the parents' ability to deal with a kid for six for a six-hour shoot and when the kid needs to perform for 15 minutes, they better be ready to make the kid perform. So anyway, long story short, she's been quite a successful uh, model, Eva, um she's been on the sides of buses. She's been she was the, the Christmas campaign lead for St. Nook Center in Glasgow last year. it has gone really well for her. But she only gets about 50% of the gigs. She goes to the auditions, I take her half the time. And then she always gets to choose a not get to choose, but she gets a fake dad and a fake mum. And you know, I always wind her up saying, Look at your fake dad, he's much more handsome than me, he's much taller <laughs> than me. He's much better than me. she says, Yeah, he is dad. So I mean, I've got to deal with that as well. But um she gets rejected 50% of the time. And as a parent, you're trying to protect them from rejection. Yeah. But she she had to face it. She had to face it. And I watched her deal with it. And if she had a particularly handsome uh, fake dad and a nice, pretty fake mum, and it usually has a kind of fake two-year-old daughter or brother, and she got on really well with them in the mock-up auditions, she'll sort of say to me, Dad, what, what happened to that? I so, well, you didn't get it, honey. They gave it to somebody else. And she deals with it, and she talks about it. So that whole career she's had since she was three years old has taught her how to deal with failure. And I, I didn't even think that was going to happen when she started doing this, but I watched her deal with it. And I thought, good on you, Hannah." I, I, I wasn't subjected to that at that age.
0: Scots Care. Helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London you the same as me in that you've got two two stepsons. I've got two sons, and then you have had a daughter uh, slightly later on in life. And it's a different world, isn't it? Because when my boys go quiet, I know something's wrong. But when my daughter goes quiet, I will find her just playing or drawing or something. And girls are a different species, aren't they?
1: Well, I've, I've, as I get, I've grew up in a house of three brothers. I've got a younger brother. Gary John, obviously my older brother, Pat. So there's two or three years between us. Um, so I only knew a house of boys. And then, as I said, I've got my two stepsons who are just they're just about to leave the nest. Um, <laughs> and my nine-year-old daughter, which is mine. So I don't know much about girls. I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything that I've learned. Uh, yes, you're right. They, they, they do seem to be able to kind of build a little fantasy space for themselves, and they can amuse themselves for um any length of time my daughter's not a big screen girl she's got her ipads and she's got her iphones but the, what she looks at on the ipad is all about creating stuff so she'll look at the ipad for half an hour i won't see her, and she'll come downstairs and say daddy do you have scissors do you have paper clips do you have paper and i need a green crayon and yeah so and then i'll say what do you need all this for and she shows me the kind of creator sites she's found on youtube those are amazing. Those sites that the kids watch, yeah. there's all these people just making crafts. I mean, we never had that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've, I, don't, I don't worry about her um, at all. She's got her, in Scotland, all the under-22-year-olds get free bus passes. So she got her free bus pass the other day, and I let her go on the bus And her own. Her eyes were as wide as saucers when she came back. <laughs> she loved it. That was her first sense of, I can go anywhere I want, Dad. You can go anywhere you want. Go to Inverness, You can get down to Dumfries, do whatever you want. So she, now she's got, her, she's got her phone with a SIM card in it and she's got a free bus pass. She's got freedom.
0: She's got freedom. That's brilliant. Let me talk about when you were talking about going back to dealing with the failure of things because you turned something that you loved and you did from a very young age into, you know, it's when a hobby comes a job. And mm-hmm. but I mean, and you do seem very grounded, Greg, but was there ever a point you just thought, oh, sod this for a game of soldiers? I don't want to do this anymore. No, no. Um... I'm very
1: hands-on. So I, I I've done many different things. I mean, I've been a tour manager, I've been a roadie, I've been a driver, I've been lots of things. When Pat wanted out not wanted out, he wanted a break from the music business, um, sort of late nineties. He just didn't want to do it as much anymore. Uh, I've been a recording engineer all my life. I started as a recording engineer when I was 16, 17 years old. So I just started I love a love of jazz music, so I started doing a lot of live jazz sound engineering and some recordings i ended up working with the scottish national jazz orchestra and um i must admit when you've got what is it there's 22 of them and you're laying out all the seats and you're laying out all the music stands and you're making up all the mics and you're saying and honestly you 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 smell like you played squash for about four hours because you're working so hard and then you're first in to set it all up and then the orchestra comes and plays and the audience turns up and then you're last out because you've got to break it all back down again. That's a shift. Mm. But I quite enjoyed doing it because one, it keeps you fit. Um, you're still involved in music and what you love doing. Um, so, I mean, never have I thought, even in situations like that, when you've been working for 14 hours and you're thinking, God, and you just want to hit the hay and just you're up in the morning, you do the same again. So, I mean, I've been through years of... Uh, I've been out on the road and been a two-man, I've been to Texas, I've been to Japan, Tokyo, with different bands. Um, and I know quite a lot of the music business because i have been doing it for so long. So I'm there just to kind of point them in the right direction and help them. There was one band I had, in we were in Tokyo, and they were doing really well. And we went for a big interview, and there was loads of people waiting to interview them at the record company's offices. And the first interview, I sat with them, and they're young, young kids, 19, 20 years old. And the Japanese interviewers are obviously keen to know what the Glasgow music business music scene's like. So they're talking about, you know, bands like Bill and Sebastian and the like Delgados and all this indie stuff. And the band I was with just slagged them all off. Oh, really? was, that's crap. Man. So I stopped the first interview and I brought them downstairs and I said, What the hell are you doing? Oh, they are rubbish. No, 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 no. This is These are bands assigned to this record label, the building you're in. <laughs> oh, that's just so. Please, and look at the faces of these journalists. They've just want to find out what the scene's like. If you don't like a band, just say they do their own thing or don't completely slag. They've been watching far too many Oasis interviews. you? you, And they've flown you to bloody Tokyo and you're slagging off all their bands. So we went back up, continued our day of interviews and they were well-behaved. I took them out for a lovely meal at the end of it. So I've always found myself in situations like that of just trying to say to other bands and musicians that I work with you know I've been doing this for like nearly 40 years you should lean on my experience and I find myself in situations slagging off bands I've done exactly the same thing when I was a kid and I've just went oh no why did I do that you know so there's a lot of little instances like that but I've, Pat and I you know been doing this for so long I know I've never ever thought I don't want to do this anymore
0: yeah. I've got my HGV1
1: licence, I could be a truck driver. When they needed truck drivers um, during the pandemic there, I did think about it, and I went to talk to a guy who knows a truck driver, and he said, Greg, uh, I moved 42 tonnes of pallets today. I said, like, what? On my own? And uh, the facilities are absolutely shocking. Yes, if you want to do it. He says, but I'm away five, six days at a time. I don't see my kids, don't see my wife. And I looked at it and I thought... Because there was no money for two years uh, in the music business. So everybody had was trying to find ways to diversify. Uh, And I looked at that and I thought, I can't do that. And I'm usually quite robust, but I couldn't. That's a hard graph, though, isn't it? Oh, I don't know how those guys do it. And plus, you've got to set at 55 miles an hour, but everybody's tanking past you at 75. It must be the most frustrating. I mean, I learned to do it because all the trucks we used... um, back in the day when Hugh and Cry were a much bigger band and I used to reverse and play with them in the car parks at the venues we played in and eventually went and took my test. So that's how I did it. I've never lifted and laid pallets. I don't know how to work a forklift truck. I need to learn how to do that. So I didn't do that. Um, All I did was um, I did a lot of audio restoration throughout the pandemic. Bizarrely, people, somebody came to me and said, I've got this piece of audio and it's a a poetry. I mean, it's quite it was his wife that had died um of cancer and she'd recited poetry not long um before she passed and through friends he said can you there's lots of crap I recorded it really badly I'd recorded it on my phone and dictaphones and there was loads of it so I did I restored it and presented it to him and he gave me money I said I don't want any money he said no no uh, it was a job and then he put me on to some other people and I ended up restoring like so wedding speeches you've got people shouting you've got cutlery you've got um noise everywhere take all that out not all don't take it away but reduce it and you can make it more legible and more understandable and then from then people were i've always been restoring old soul records so people were bringing old tapes there's a great thing that happened well the recording studios never made it a lot of them over the last 10 years but what happened in america was these rare old recording studios in places like Detroit and Nashville and, and um well where's the one where's Muscle Shows where's that oh, I can't remember that is anyway these uh recording studios closed and what they did was they auctioned off the cupboards so the cupboards could contain nobody knew there was like tapes and and um old uh, reel to reels and old vinyls and then you couldn't afford to bid on the whole cupboard they split it into a shelf and a cupboard so these two guys that been over in Detroit, bidding in these auctions, putting it in a box, sometimes not going to Detroit, just bidding it on a shelf. But they don't even know it's there. But there's tapes and reels. And they would come home and they'd sift through them. And then they'd contact me and say, look, we've found these three things that have never been released of artists that we know about. Can you restore them? So that meant I didn't really need to meet anybody. I didn't need to go anywhere. I would just sit here. And it's quite a painstaking thing to do. It takes a long time to do. But um, I've really enjoyed that. And I've got quite good at it. You know, so that sort of saved me from going back in an Arctic truck and moving forty-one, yeah, to forty tons of pallets
0: I day. It was, so, it was it was a strange time. And I know, I know your parents have both passed away now, and did that change you as a person or change you musically? Um, I think about, one of the things uh, my dad, in his last few years, kept telling me to worry less, and I don't think I ever really got it. And then when he went, I kind of got it a little bit. I kind of yeah, you got to take a step back, be a little bit more objective about life. Oh no, I've always been able to take a,
1: I can do a big picture step back thing. I've always been able to do that. I don't get, um, I, I don't go down rabbit holes other than when I'm re- researching or studying, but I don't, you know, I've always been able to take a step back. My father was, he retired early. Uh, he was a, a manager in British Rail. Um, He famously sacked Alan McGee. And oh, Alan really? And Alan used to sa- slag you and cry, but he said if it wasn't for their dad sacking me, I probably wouldn't have started creation records <laughs> so every time i meet alan we always have a bit of a laugh um he apologizes for slagging to you and crying i apologize for slag analysis um <laughs> but uh when british rail were modernizing my dad and they were bringing in computer systems for all the kind of uh register stuff and my dad was a, a personnel manager um on the south side and he got offered retraining or retirements at 53 53- and he retired at 53, and he did nothing. He learned how to speak Italian. He liked going to Italy twice a year, but didn't do anything. So, when I mean, he died at 78, so he would like, 25 years of hanging out with his pals, going for walks, he didn't have a dog. He was a strange guy. It was oh. like, well, I, could, I couldn't I could retire at that young. You just couldn't do it. But that's what happened to him. So he was very supportive. He was very – they were very worried. Their, their two young sons were involved in the, the hedonism of the music business, but Pat and I weren't drug takers or big drinkers. We weren't, the hedonism thing wasn't the attraction. The attraction was getting to go to New York to work with great musicians, getting to tour the world, getting to see these fabulous European cities. That was the thing that excited us. Um, And then my mother, she was always very supportive. She was a district midwife. um, And then she moved into elderly care after she finished being a midwife. Uh, She died about three years ago um
0: I read a bit that Pat wrote about your mum and she seemed a beautiful real, that, she, she seemed a real force
1: she was she was um she was well known in, in the community I mean, Pat and I could not even when Hugh and Cry were first successful we were still known as that's one of May Caden's boys
0: so oh, I mean brilliant. we didn't
1: you know she was well better known in the, the town than us because she was a she was classic district midwife I mean these people knew everything about everybody and they didn't take any crap. I mean, mum, I remember I was coming, I was walking back from the town one day and these three neds have accosted me and asked me for money and whatever. I was with my friend, I was on my own, but my two friends were behind me and these three guys didn't realise I was with other people. So once my two other friends joined in, they kind of backed off a wee bit and it was calmed down and I looked at the guy and going, where would you get that shot? What's you got to do with you? that's my shirt no it's not when i got home i said to my mum, mom the shirt wasn't there and i said to my mum, "Mum, did you what did you do with that shirt oh you weren't wearing it i was wearing it oh cause there's a wee family down the road with no money i just put a bag together for them i said well see the guy that you gave the shirt to so i mean i was i mean that's the kind of things my mum used to do i mean you used to hide your favorite clothes because she would just put them in a bin bag and take them down to these families that had nothing Mm. And she was always doing stuff like that. She was such she was such a caring person. Um, she was the kind of she, she was enthusiastic at the beginning of supporting sort of her dreams. I mean, God knows what they thought when both their sons were involved in the music industry. They must have had quite a fright. But uh, we were successful very early on, so I mean, I guess that made them a little calmer. But they've watched the peaks and the trough throughout the last thirty five years. Um, and just shook their heads most of the time and and helped us some of the times I mean uh, when Pat split from his wife um, he moved back home for like two or three years and that, that was my mum went and just got him said come on you're not living on your own you come and live here so that brought him a relationship with his father again and relationship with his a close relationship with his mother so she was still acting as a dutiful mother even then and I went back home for a couple of years in the late nineties, because it was all getting too much for me, um, and I, and that was great. It's great to move back home for a wee while. I don't think my dad was too chuffed, but um, I enjoyed it.
0: Scots care, supporting Scots away from home in London. You see, so you were talking about peaks and and troughs, and you still seem very grounded. You know, is that a Scottish thing or a family thing? And, and the other thing I would I would say to you is, what well, what did money give you? But what did money allow you to do? Because you said you had money, you lost money, you had money again. Is there, mm-hmm. is there, is there one thing that money was good for?
1: Um, let me think. Um, experiences. I guess um, there was never much time to spend the money uh, because you were always away working. When I was away all the time, um, when for about like five six years, I was never home either, touring or away working. Um, so I mean, I wasn't really. I've never been a big property owner. I've not really kind of thought, right, I'll invest all my money. I've never been like that. I've lived in so many houses all over and rented, and it's never really bothered me the kind of property route. I was a bit of a petrol head when I was younger, so I, I bought some nice cars and I quite enjoyed them. Up the back of my mum's, there was a every second Sunday, if you walked up the back of the hill of my mum's, there was these big, big houses, and um, there was this brown Ferrari used to sit outside this house and it was obviously a son visiting these folks and it was beautiful and I was now chocolate brown and I used to stand there rain and snow just looking at it and I'd peer in the window because I loved the design of it I loved the way it sat in the road and once the guy came out and he shoots me away and he was like oh hey don't don't go anywhere near the car and I kind of trudged back down the road and my mum said don't keep going up there someone it was beautiful <laughs> right, looking at the car and this is true I said if I have ever a car like that I would come out with the keys and say do you want to sit in it son yeah that's what i would do so wind forward what would that be 12 years later 13 years later i had a porsche 911 right bright red beautiful and it was sitting outside my mum's. and my dad just said guy greg put that can you park it away from the house I said, oh, dad don't be, don't be dafty said, there's four wings around that no oh, three wings around that so i came out and you know well, oh, I remember the actual scene, and the boys had their bikes, and I said, put the bikes in the front garden, jump in. And I said, where do you live? What? So oh, yeah. And they lived in the roughest meanest estate called Townhead, Colt Bridge. So off we went, up to Townhead, and around the house, we put the window down, they're all shouting at their pals and stuff brilliant. like that. And I drove back, dropped them off, and I said, now, boys, if you ever see this car, could you keep an eye on it? Ah. Yes. They we were, oh, that's brilliant. So what a rush they had. So... I felt good about myself. My dad's shaking his head, touching it. So the next next day, I'm in my house. My phone goes, and it's my dad. My dad never phoned me. I said, Dad, is everything okay? There's 30 of them here in the garden. (laughs) So they got all their pals to come. Is he in, mister? Is he in? (laughs) Is he in, mister? Brilliant. (laughs) There's 30 of them in here. You're in Egypt. (laughs) That's great. But, I mean, no, that's the kind of stuff. That's from my mum, though. That's from... She's a care a nurse, carer, cares for people, is thoughtful. That all comes from my mum. But she needed my dad because he was practical and a bit grumpy and a bit tight. So she needed that because she's all flamboyant and caring and would give her last penny to everybody. And my dad sort of kept her in check. So Absolutely. that was the dynamic. And,
0: and you're, you're still, you're back on the road. You're doing, I see, I was looking at your website and I, I was talking to some people and I said you're doing some nice festivals. And I like oh. taking the kids to festivals to see bands that I grew up with. And mm-hmm. I was playing... My thirteen-year-old Noah, I was playing "Ordinary Angel" to him, mm-hmm. and I hadn't—I hadn't listened to. it. That was such a brilliant tune from when I was when I was younger. And I was, do you know what? It sounds odd, but it still stands up. It still sounds really fresh. And Noah went, "Oh, that's a great tune," and he loved the way it begins with the with, yeah. with the kind of I don't know. How would you describe the beginning a kind of Indian sound to it? Maybe it's an Indian. Um, we it's. Uh...
1: The whole thing about The Ordinary Angel, the whole premise of the song is, you know, we're all ordinary angels winning tiny victories. So that the whole intro of the song was to be a kind of world music um, kind of uh, musical piece. So in um, when we recorded that song in New York, you you could contact this agency and they would, this is before the internet, they, they would um, tell you what kind of world musicians they had and they had Russian throat singers, they had... Um, Indian uh, sitar players and tabla players, and we'd everybody in. I mean, the, the multi tracks recordings of that intro, there were so many different versions of it, and it's twice, three times as long as actually the one that's on the record, because it was just amazing. It was like, I don't know, like a zoo of different world musicians, and that was the whole idea of that whole intro. It cost an absolute fortune, from memory. But, and
0: it's a um, long intro on the actual record. Yeah, yeah.
1: On the on the record, it's quite a long intro, but that's it edited. So um, when Pat introduces the song just now at the festival, you know, this is a song for fans that stay with bands and bands that stay with fans. You know, we're all in this together. So it was a kind of a collective um, uh, thought of, for that song, for people just to stay together and to, and to be together and to and to work together. That's what the song's all about. So, I mean, it has stood the test of time. It's got an 808 drum machine. It's got um, 80 synths and all over it. And, yeah. It worked for us, and it still works to this day. The fans love it when we play
0: it. Greg, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for being on the Scots Care podcast. It's been a real delight speaking to you.
1: Well, thank you, Marcus. I hope I didn't waffle too long, but I've really, I've really enjoyed that. You brought back some good memories, and I'm going to sit minutes have a cup of coffee and think about mum and dad for five minutes before I start my
0: work. Scots Care. Supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counselling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support.